We're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8 tonight. We are journeying through and we are hitting the back half of Luke, chapter 8. This is night 20, I believe, in, in the Gospel of Luke. And so uh, the good thing is we haven't been given a timeline of when we have to be done, so I guess we can just take as much time as we want with this. So unless a lot of people start coming up going, you've got to get through this quicker than, uh, you know, if we, if we do some and we take a break, you know, it doesn't feel so long and go back and forth. But I tell you what, uh, I've really enjoyed getting a chance to walk patiently through the Gospel of Luke. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm excited to get to look at a story tonight that probably you remember if you've been in church for a little while because it is a strange story, and yet it is a radical story of the grace of God. And so we just sang a moment ago about uh, the, the darkest night of the soul and the sweetest songs of victory, and we're going to see this guy have the same thing as the sweat. We're going to get to see the darkest night and the sweetest song all in about 13 verses tonight. And I think it's also one of the things that we see, you know, sometimes when we are coming up through or we read different passages in the Bible, we might come to a passage like tonight and our quick reaction would be, boy, that man's crazy. But the more we look at some of the crazy people, we say, you know what, I see myself in there a little bit. And there's some things I can learn in what Jesus does in interacting with him as well. So we come tonight to a man who may not look as strange to you by the time we get done. At least in some ways you might find uh, new hope and, uh, and new strength there. So uh, here's what I'd like to do. I, I would like to read the passage of Scripture. And then I would like to show you a video adaptation of this passage from the Jesus film, which was produced by Campus Crusade for Christ in the late 70s. And uh, I think they do as, as good of probably an adaptation as could be for that. And that gives you a little bit of a visual and helps us think through it, and then we'll dive into the text. So if we could, allow me to read the biblical passage first so that we're able to see the video in light of what we just read. Following the video, I'm going to say a word of prayer, and we'll, we'll dive in. Luke chapter 8, beginning with verse 26, and then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. And for a long time, he had worn no clothes. He'd not lived in a house, but among the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. And now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. And so he gave them permission and then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. And when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. And then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, so he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them, uh, with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. <laughs> Thank you. 
son of the Most High God. What do you want with me? I beg you, don't punish me. What is your name? Legion. Lord, we beg you, do not send us into the abyss. Let us enter into the herd of swine. Hey! Come back! Stop! Stop! And the demons went out of the man and into the pigs. Leave us! Go away from this place! Leave us! Go away from here! I'll follow you wherever you go. Let me come with you. Go back home and tell what God has done for you. Pray with me. Father, tonight, would you tell us the story of Jesus? Write on our hearts every word. Tell us the story most precious, the sweetest that ever was heard. We ask these things in his name, the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We come to a passage tonight that um, one illustrator, you know, made this man look something like this. The darkest... Uh, or the deepest darkness, what it was like for a tortured individual on the other side of the Sea of Galilee to encounter Jesus. And we come here tonight to, to see Jesus' interaction with, uh, with one man. If you got your hand out this evening, uh, the first thing that I've got for you there is following the calming of the storm, the disciples sail to the opposite side, which is actually Gentile territory without a clear reason. In, in essence, Jesus has a clear reason, but we're not told a clear reason. We come to find out it is for one unlikely person. <laughs> if you were doing some sort of um, church survey on the, the category most likely to be reached in that area of the world at the time, if you would have been one of the disciples trying to see where your next convert would come from, the very last man you would come to is this man. But much like when we read in John 4 that Jesus had to go through Samaria, and as we keep reading, we find out the reason he had to go through Samaria was in order to be able to talk to one woman in the middle of the day who was going to be drawing water when nobody else was because of the plan he had for her life. Now, the plan that he had to interact with her was going to impact others in her own community. And very similarly, we see here with this man, the interaction that Jesus has with him is going to drastically impact his community, no doubt, as well. To give you a few sort of perspectives on, you know, the, the geography here, uh, from Capernaum down to the area of Gadara or the Gerasenes, one is a regional name, one is a town name, uh, sometimes different names either in the three gospels are, are given. So Gadara and Gerasenes between the town and the region is a little bit interchangeable, but essentially across the entire harbor, and so they, they are, excuse me, across the entire sea into the, the Gadara 
harbor. So they come there. So imagine the disciples. They have a near-death experience in the middle of the lake, right? And so they're out there. The boat is going down. Jesus is asleep, and they're already imagining what lyrics Gordon Lightfoot is going to use to write a song about them. You know, what in the world is going to be described about the shipwreck that ended everything, all that was so hopeful? And they go through what may have been the most frightening experience of their life because not only were they afraid of the storm, but then they became even more afraid when they saw Jesus calm the storm. And they said, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? And so if you or I were on that boat, if we were one of the disciples, probably how we would have been feeling as we got to the other shore was, I sure am glad that was over. Let's get a nice place to lay down and take it easy for a little bit. And then who should come but the last person you want coming uh, to the fellowship meeting that night? A man who uh, is described as being naked and wild and unable to be chained for very long and running through the tombs. He was everything we could think of uh, in terms of as, as in, a, in the deepest darkness that he could have been at that point, and Jesus comes intentionally to, to find him. Make no mistake, as we go through this passage, it's very important for us to realize something. This passage is not a passage about how clinically to reach people who, uh, who are far from Christ. This is a passage to point us to the fact that only Jesus can do what we see in this passage. And so we are called to point people to the Savior and to the Master, but it is only He who can do what we see here tonight. And so in the farthest reaches of who would be on your mind tonight to say, I just hope they would believe, I just hope they would leave this or that, I hope they would, you know, walk out of this lifestyle to that lifestyle, I hope they would turn away from this and to this, whoever that is on your heart tonight, you know, we recognize this sort of dual reality that God has placed us to be missionaries in people's lives. And yet as far as we can go, all we can do is bring people to the master and hope and pray uh, that they will hear and receive what he has for them. Only Jesus can do uh, what we see in this passage today. And for me, there's a lot of hope in that. The region of the Gadarenes or the Gerasenes or the Gadara, whatever you want to refer to it, is sort of this desolate region on the other side, more than likely from the language that's used in this passage. It was very similar in Jesus' day. And often when we think of tombs, we think of graveyards and headstones and crosses and angels and those kind of things. As you probably know, in this area of the world, tombs were in caves. And so the bedrock in Israel being very high, you could not bury a body deep enough uh, to really bury a body. And so you would have to leave it in a cave, seal that cave with a stone, and uh, there would be a sort of decomposition process that would take place uh, where you would be able to move that body eventually to bones that would go into a box. But that is the, the tombs were in these caves. This region of the world has a, just a plethora Uh, of caves, which is why the Dead Sea Scrolls, for instance, could go unfound for 19 centuries before they were discovered or or more than that uh, because of uh, just so many caves to explore and to to tap uh, the depths in. We mentioned chains tonight in the passage. Here's a picture of some chains from that time period. Probably doesn't look like something you'd want to have around your wrists or your legs but uh, more than likely something like this made of iron uh, that this man would have been bound with. And there actually are no more pigs around the Sea of Galilee. Did you know that? Nobody's tending pigs anymore because on one side you have Jewish territory and on the other side uh, you have Muslim territory now. 
And all of the, both of those cultures are not real high on swine. And so uh, this picture was actually taken from the uh, foot of Mount Olympus where some uh, Greeks have swine herds there, maybe similar to what you would think. Not quite Wilbur in Charlotte's Web, you know, a little bit more of a Middle Eastern uh, pig there, probably still some good barbecue out of it, but, uh, but you've got there a herd of pigs. We might think of them somewhere between pigs and boars, you know, in our mindset. And then if you see here, this more than likely was this slope or a nearby slope that these pigs ran down and into the sea and, uh, and are drowned when the, demon, uh, the demons enter into that herd. And so this is just a few shots of, you know, sort of the area, desolate places that would be uh, that this man would run out into. This is actually the ruins of the town of Gadara. And so if you were uh, around that area, perhaps these men came from tending these pigs, ran back to this location, and from there the people came back out to see Jesus. These are uh, some other uh, ruins. You can see here a main road that runs through this area built by the Romans. As this would have been a Gentile territory, it would have been first sort of settled and, and controlled in some sense by the Greeks. And then otherwise, uh, the Romans taking it over, even an amphitheater that was there uh, in that town. So fairly prominent place. The Gentiles in this area would more than likely have thought of the Jews who came across the boat as a little bit of a strange and backward people, more than likely, because they felt they themselves were so civilized. And so uh, interestingly enough, though, it is their least civilized person who goes out to meet Jesus and the disciples. And so really for us, the great introspection of tonight is to get a chance to find, I think, a lot of hope and maybe a window into some good things from, from this man who meets Jesus and everything has changed. You know, the Gospel of Matthew gives an account of this as well. It's actually shortened, but Matthew tells us that there were actually two demoniacs. Mark and Luke only mention one, and we're left to wonder if perhaps that was because the reaction of the one uh, was to come back to Jesus, much like the one leper who returned and gave thanks. Perhaps there was a unique way that this man's uh, being delivered uh, really set the stage so that Luke and, and Mark only included his story, while Matthew mentions briefly uh, that there were two of them. But they come before Jesus, and particularly this man goes from uh, angry and crazy to seated and in his right mind at the feet of Jesus. Now, second thing that I think is important when we talk about this, the second point on your uh, sheet tonight as well, is that the Old Testament never explicitly speaks about demon possession. Did you know that? Now, there are times when we look in the Old Testament, we can say, well, there's demonic activity that's taking place here. We might even come to a place of saying, we believe there's demonic possession that's, that's happening in this instance or that instance. But as far as the text itself claiming demonic possession, that actually is never explicitly said in the Old Testament. But boy, you read the Gospels and it's boom, 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 boom. They're everywhere. Why is that? Well, one of the reasons more than likely for that is, is one of the things Pastor Brandon mentioned on Sunday. Uh, on Sunday, as he's taking us through Exodus, he had mentioned that there are heightened periods of miraculous occurrences that take place in the, in the Bible. You see particularly this in the time of the Exodus and what God is doing with the nation of Israel in that time period and then following the, uh, the 40 years in the wilderness and all the way through to Joshua and that whole generation. You see it again with Elijah and Elisha, and you see it also in the Gospels with the Lord Jesus and his ministry. And so along with God working miraculously, what he stated uh, is also what, what's true. You see in the Bible, there's going to be a counterfeit that appears as well. 
And so while Jesus was at work in his ministry, Satan wasn't going to allow that to be done without a fight. And so you see a tremendous amount of demonic possession. And I believe what we're to do with that is to recognize a unique struggle that's taking place in the Gospels. And we have to be careful not to fall off either side of the cliff when it comes to talking about things like possession of demons. Number one, I think it's important for us not to look at that and go, well, that's silly. That can never happen today. Surely we don't have to think about demons and the devil. What kind of laughable things to talk about than that? Obviously, the Bible points us again and again to the fact that the real struggle that is going on in the universe is spiritual, it's not physical, that there are forces and at work that we don't see that are constantly at war with one another. And I think it's very evident that at times in our life, there is something evil or demonic that's taking place. And so we have to recognize that our fight is not against flesh and blood, as the scripture says. At the same time, I believe we'd be wrong to look at a passage like this and say, wow, this man was plagued with demons, so that must mean anytime something bad is going on in my life, it must be demons. And so we begin to say, well, there must not be such things as mental illness, it must be demons. There must not be things such as sin patterns or just struggles in our life, it must be demonic, and we start attributing everything to demons. I think that also would be the wrong side of the cliff uh, to fall down on. When we start attributing everything that way, we can almost uh, take in vain a teaching of Scripture that we lighten and we, we lessen and we sort of trivialize. Uh, the spiritual battles around us. And so we sort of have to battle each of those. So when we come to this guy here, we're able to see someone that we don't know how he got into the predicament that he got into. Maybe it was because of his own sin, or maybe in some way uh, he was somewhat of a victim in, in the, the demons who came after him to possess him. We're not told uh, exactly what his story is, uh, but we do. The third note there, we don't see this man's story, but we see the pattern everywhere that sin deceives, it separates, it punishes, it destroys. You don't have to be possessed by a legion of demons to see the pattern in your own life and in the life of those you love that sin wants to deceive, to separate, to punish, and to destroy. The first great lie told in the history of humanity is what? If you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will surely not die. Half-truths, deceit. Deceit is what happens when people think they're right and they're wrong. Deception is something that sin desires to do to say, if you'll do this, you'll be happy, you'll be fulfilled, you'll be like everybody else, you'll be successful, whatever else it is, it'll feel good. Any number of things, sin longs to deceive. And in that deception, what happens is a separation. This man didn't run around like a crazy person on the downtown streets, you know, in the middle of town. He began to withdraw and he went to desolate places, to the desert, to the wilderness, and he would be involved in the, in the tombs. I can't remember the last time I drove by a cemetery and thought, boy, that looks like a great spot to go camping. Maybe we could have a picnic later. Think of how backward what had been perhaps somehow promised to him in what he had fallen prey to, and that now he's become separated and isolated from everyone, that he's been removed. And that's what sin does in our life as well. I think Satan isn't sometimes trying as hard to simply get us to do things wrong as he is to create this barrier, this impact in our relationship with the Lord where we find ourselves further and further walking and separating away from the Lord to, to where that, that 
communication is broken, that relationship is in need of reconciliation, that Satan wants to separate uh, God's people. This man having no knowledge of God, but being a, a child of God in the sense that he's a created being to separate and to pull him away. And then that sin punishes. Satan, the, the very term itself means accuser. That this man was punishing himself for reasons that we don't fully know, but we still live in a day and age where there are people who decide in order to relieve the pain, in order to deal with the darkness, they'll take knives or they'll take whatever it is and begin to cut themselves. This man is doing the same thing 20 centuries earlier. The punishment that takes place from the darkness that he's wrapped up in and he begins to be at war with himself and ultimately that sin seeks to destroy. Remember Jesus' words that the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. That same pattern is evident here. And so you don't have to be running through the cemetery unable to be chained in order to see that the darkness in your own life is wanting to move you that direction as well. I think for each one of us to be sober and to be vigilant the way Peter talks about, to recognize that our adversary, the devil, roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, this is the pattern that he wants in each of our lives, to be deceived, to be removed, and then to, to find that that leads to a further and further breakdown of, uh, of joy, of happiness, the darkest nights of the soul uh, that come in. The, the ones that would come because of an absence, so because of a removal uh, from walking where God would have us to walk. Now, as we look at the passage, as Jesus comes out of the boat, it seems as if the very moment they hit the shore, this begins. And so the disciples get no rest. They don't get their land legs back on, under them. They don't get to take out the box lunch that they'd gotten from the grocery store on the other side. They don't get to do any of that. It's just boom, right to it. This man begins to interact with Jesus and it's literally the demons that are speaking to Jesus through him. And one of the ironies of the Gospels is that you often see the demons have a better theological understanding of Jesus than the people do. And once again, you also see that here. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? The demons know exactly how to address the Lord. They have all the head knowledge in the world, probably superior to any of us. And it's a reminder to us that head knowledge is not what gains access to salvation. It's not simply an assent and a belief toward something because the demons believe who Jesus is and know that truth greater than we do in some sense. And yet at the same time, they would not surrender to him. You could make the argument there's no pathway given to them. God did not send uh, them a savior. He sent us one. From the best we can tell, that access was not granted to them, but there's a lack of willingness for them to surrender, to be subject uh, to the Lord. And so the next point here, the demon's reaction in verse 28 should give us a window into the authority and the wrath of Jesus. Should give us a window into the authority and wrath of Jesus. My mother-in-law tells a story about when my wife was a little girl, and my, my, uh, my wife, Laura, has an older brother that's, I think, three years older than her, and it was one of those times where the kids were in another room, and they thought nobody could hear them, and so they began to talk and to scheme about how they were going to get their way in something that they were planning. And um, my mother-in-law relays that as she walked towards that direction, she heard my wife looking up at her brother, and as they were saying, well, what are we going to do about dad? 
my wife said to her brother, don't worry about dad, I know how to handle him. (laughs) 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 Some of you that got daughters, you'd have to say, yeah, that's probably true, she does, yeah. For the picture that much of our world has of the Lord Jesus, you would imagine the demons looking at Jesus saying, don't worry about this one, we can handle him. While we see the Savior meek and lowly presented in the Gospels, we do not see the Savior who is without strength and power and authority. And it should really make us pause to recognize that the demon's reaction is one of fear uh, as, as Jesus steps onto the shore and as they come face to face with him, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. And then Luke gives us an aside of what had happened, that he'd been chained and bound and they couldn't do anything. He'd break those bonds and go running, driven by the demon into the desert. So the demon's reaction gives us a window into the authority and the wrath of Jesus as we kind of go down that same vein. We see that they are fearful and they are asking for mercy from the Lord Jesus. The the next point that I've got there for you is that ironically, the demons had tortured this man in isolated darkness and they didn't want themselves to be cast into outer darkness. The abyss. Now there's sometimes discussion on what this word exactly means, but I think one thing we can say for sure is that the demons recognized that Jesus had the authority to cast them into a worse place, a worse situation than where they were currently. There are some who believe the abyss describes uh, the depths of the sea, that they could be cast there. Uh, There are others who believe that this is is talking about Jesus being able to cast them into a spiritual darkness uh, before the coming day of the Lord in which they would just be left to await their judgment. And so while there's some discussion, you'll have to get to heaven to get the final answer. I don't have it for you. Either heaven or Pastor Brandon, they'll have to give it to you. What I've got tonight is just to say, well, I don't know the exact answer to that. But it is clear that the demons do not want to get cast into a place where they would be separated and in some sense punished and isolated uh, in a place that is not ideal for them, which is a strange request when they've been responsible for doing that to this man for quite some time. You know, as you look at this guy, whatever he looked like, but maybe something like this, he's a man who's lost everything. What was the story of his family? What was the story of his possessions, his business, his vocation? What was the story of his friendships, his purpose, his meaning? By the time Jesus comes in contact with him, all of that seems to be gone. And he's left only to an existence that's being tortured by demonic forces. And so the demons that tortured this man do not themselves want to be cast. And so then we see an interesting question. Once again, another unanswered one that I won't have a perfect answer for you. Jesus asks their name and they say legion. You've probably heard before that a legion of Roman soldiers numbered in the thousands of soldiers. We don't know whether that exactly means there's thousands of demons, but that's the, you know, that's the comparison that's used, a great number of demons. And now a large herd of pigs, verse 32, was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let them enter these. And so he gave them permission. 
a group of pigs. Imagine how bad the abyss must be to want to go to a group of pigs. Have you ever watched a pig eat? Always uh, that, that phrase in the prodigal son that really drives home the depravity of where he's at when he says he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. Have you ever watched a pig eat and thought, man, I'd love to have some of that. <laughs> that, is, that is rock bottom when you've gotten to that point. There's nowhere lower to go. Pigs, as you probably know, to the, the Jewish mindset, were just a disgusting animal. They were, they were unclean. They, you know, you could, you could probably feel the disciples just not even wanting to be around uh, where they were when they pulled up and saw all these pigs over there. And so the last point on the front of this page, while there's an interesting discussion about why Jesus used pigs, perhaps the best answer is that Jesus used a physical act or an action to show the spiritual healing of this man. Jesus didn't have to cast the demons into the pigs. We might could get into different discussions about what, what this means or that means. I don't know where the demons went once those pigs drowned. I don't know the answer to a number of things exactly with that. But what I will say is that I do believe that Jesus used the pigs as a way of showing that this man had been cleansed. And in that, in even fulfilling the demonic request, what he's able to show this whole town is that something mighty has taken place. When those pigs go rumbling down into that ocean or the Sea of Galilee and they look up and they, they sort of have this evidence of what has been reciprocated in the heart of this, this man, how much has left him, what he's been delivered from. And I wonder when Jesus met any of us, how many pigs would have gone running down the hillside for whatever deliverance he gave us, how many, you know, still from day to day, week to week, year to year, that God's work in our life. If we were able to see the darkness of our own sin, if we were able to really quantify our need for a Savior in a way that we won't be able to until we get to heaven, what, what amount of pigs would it take for deliverance in each of our hearts and lives? This man's able to see a quantity of that, and also the disciples are as well. And that begins uh, Jesus' reign as the most unpopular guy to come into Gadara in quite a long time, probably since Alexander the Great. <laughs> And so Jesus has the pigs go off the cliff. This man couldn't be happier. But all the other folks in town didn't feel so crazy about it. The large herd of pigs careens off the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Verse 34, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. The disciples saw the wind and the waves and the storm cease, and they were afraid. In Jesus' good action, their response was fear. The Gentiles who were here in this territory know nothing of Jesus, but when they see the scariest man in town, the Grinch of that city, sitting at the feet of Jesus in his right mind and clothed, their response is fear as well. Part of it was probably the miraculous side of what happened to this man, but also what I've got for you on the back here, the first point, this story represents the harshest Gentile reaction to Jesus that we see in the Gospels. Now, you might say, well, what about those Romans who crucified Jesus? Well, certainly that is the case that they had a part in that. Really, they were being driven, though, uh, by the, the Jewish leaders who wanted to execute Jesus. They were, to some extent, a pawn in that story while they played a real part here we see Gentile action that takes place that's really economically motivated. 
The economic impact of the lost pigs trumped the willingness to see this miracle clearly. The economic impact of the lost pigs, these were their livelihoods. Could they really rejoice at what Jesus had done if it was going to cost them $5,000, $10,000? I think we could ask ourselves the same question. What's the price tag for us rejoicing in Jesus? Where does the cost get too high where we say, not that far, Lord? Not willing to pay that much. And if it's going to cost me that, I'd rather you leave than stay. You know, most of the time as we're reading the Gospels, we'll see that the, the large majority of the negative interactions that take place with Jesus are from the religious leaders, those who should know better, the ones who feel that their power is being stepped on and infringed on. They're unwilling to submit to Jesus. This is the one time that we see a most clear example of Gentiles really wanting Jesus to go the other way, and it was because of what it cost them. We're just not willing to pay that price. Now, I don't know what impact this guy had. I would imagine if I lived in that town, I'd be really in, appreciative of the guy who's been on America's Most Wanted every week for the last how, how, who knows how long is finally delivered. He's no longer a problem. That's a, a means to rejoice. Maybe a few of them say, well, you know what? I got my boat. We can go down there. Uh, I've never had, you know, pig seafood, but maybe we can get them out there and do something with them. I don't know. I don't know if pigs sink or float, so you'll have to tell me that afterwards if you know the answer to that. But their reaction is, if this is what it costs, we'd rather not have Jesus. Despite the miracle, despite the deliverance, while so many other crowds say, wow, if this is what's taking place, let me bring my family member, let me do this or that, they, they want him to leave. And so the cost keeps them from seeing this miracle clearly. I remember reading once that Luke's gospel presents a picture of Jesus continually that we're able to see that in order to take hold of Jesus is going to mean we're going to have to lessen our grip on whatever's in the other hand. Whatever's holding on to our heart and capturing our imagination, to hold on to Jesus means to lessen our grip on money, on wealth, on stuff, on things, on priorities, whatever it is. There's a letting go of ourself in order to be able to cling to who Jesus is. But then, you know, what a great phrase. It's Mark who's gonna tell us that Martha and Mary fall at Jesus' feet at Lazarus's funeral. No, excuse me, it's John that's gonna tell us that Martha and Mary fall at Jesus' feet at Lazarus' funeral. It's Luke who's gonna tell us that while Martha serves in the kitchen, it is Mary that's seated at the feet of Jesus. Again and again throughout the gospels, the ultimate place of redemption is at the feet of Jesus. The ultimate place of redemption is at the feet of Jesus. So much so that you're going to see a Roman guard who says, surely this man was the son of God. Where does he say that? At the feet of Jesus, at the cross. In John's gospel, you're going to see Peter and the disciples see Jesus again after the resurrection. They're going to sit around. They're going to eat some fish. They're going to talk. And Jesus is going to not only present himself resurrected, but he's going to restore them. These guys who had run out on him, Peter, who had denied him. And it's there at the feet of Jesus that we see great things happen. The ultimate place of redemption is at the feet of Jesus. That's always where it starts. You know, for each one of us to want to try to accomplish something, do something, figure out something, whatever it is, if you don't know where to start, start at the feet of Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. If you don't know where to start, 
start at Jesus' feet. You know, daily in his word, whether it's, it's from the Bible itself, whether it's in prayer, whether it's in worship, I want to be found at Jesus' feet. And it's interesting that you've got the comparison of these two guys, or excuse me, these two groups. The individual, the crazy man, we don't know his name, but he's at the feet of Jesus and he's responded in faith. These other folks that as they see that miracle, they respond in fear. You know, there's rarely a position on Jesus between faith and fear. Usually people choose one path or the other. Now you say, well, there's always those folks who say, well, I think Jesus was a nice teacher, a good person. Usually what that means is that they've kept Jesus enough at an arm's length that they haven't really investigated him enough to really decide one way or the other. But when someone has really gotten a chance to experience Jesus, they will usually respond in either faith or fear. Some of you in here might say, well, I responded in fear for 10 years before Jesus captured my heart. Sometimes the Lord turns our fear into faith eventually. But I think it's, it's important for us to recognize an understanding of Jesus creates a strong reaction in our hearts one way or the other. And Satan will always try to pull us away with a strong response otherwise. I don't want to have anything to do with that or with faith. And you, going into this story, wouldn't have expected the two parties to be what they were. There's rarely a position on Jesus between faith and fear. The herdsmen tell Jesus to leave. The town responds, you know, in that way as well. And so as Jesus prepares to get into the boat, you can imagine this man going up to Jesus, this man who's been left with nothing and now has been given everything. He says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus meets people in the gospels who had possessions, who held them back from being able to follow him. Well, Jesus, if you'll let me bury my father, well, Jesus, if you'll let me look at this land, well, Jesus, this, that, this man says, look, I'll follow you wherever you go. Y'all ever heard the George Strait song, Amarillo by Morning? And it describes this young man who's just got something like $20 in in his pocket, about to head to the next rodeo, just the clothes on his back, describing how the ultimate freedom of heading to the next rodeo, but when he talks, he just sees a guy with nothing. But he's got his freedom and he's got his joy and enjoyment. I don't know how theologically correct it is to reference George Strait, but just go with me here for just a minute. (laughs) This man goes up to Jesus and he says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, stay home. Wow. This is the first eager missionary we've had in the gospel. Everybody else is making excuses to stay. This man's ready to go. Jesus says, why don't you stay here? Why don't you tell people in your own town what's happened to you? The next point, sometimes God has plans for us in the farthest reaches of the earth. And sometimes where he's called us is right where we already are. That there won't be distant people who can communicate with our people the way that we can. That's why in the mission boards, even of the Southern Baptist Convention, our greatest hope is that those who are from the cultures that we seek to reach are captured by the gospel and go and become themselves light for their own cultures. And they themselves, as part of that tribe and that kingdom and that nation, are able to go back and to share. Not because somehow we want to lessen or not be involved as much, but we recognize that there's a power in people speaking to their own people. Jesus says the greatest witness that this community has is you. 
And while they're sending Jesus away, what must have happened as this man began to go through the town and to share, because we see this at the end, Jesus says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And this is what we see. And the man went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Can you believe that? He actually did what Jesus told him to do. He actually did it. The last bullet point I've got for you tonight. This man's name has been lost to history. His obedience has not been. This man's name has been lost to history and his obedience has not been. We are in the season of giving to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering for North American missions. One of the things that you'll see this Sunday is a video from the North American Mission Board. And one of the things in that video is a picture of Annie Armstrong. And I think the video opens with this aside. This is the only surviving picture of Annie Armstrong. Annie Armstrong has less documentation than the dessert that you shared on Instagram two weeks ago. You know, think about how mind-boggling this woman who not only advocated for international missions and is responsible for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering in, 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 for international missions by and large that has done so much good through a century or more at this point, advocating for those who were on the field who couldn't advocate for themselves, but her herself not receiving a salary and doing all that she could to travel around and build missions efforts in what was then called home missions and now is called North American missions. She has no no legacy in terms of photos, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not rot and thieves do not break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. We don't know this man's name. His obedience has been recorded for centuries and perhaps centuries more to hear. Our obedience is more important than our name, and our name's not worth anything if there's not obedience attached to it. So may you be encouraged by the life or the story, the brief story of a guy who may look crazy at first glance, but maybe we find ourselves in just a bit as we look harder. May we meet the Savior, sit at his feet, and obey. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you did intentionally in the life of a man that was too far gone. The crossing of a sea and the weathering of a storm because Jesus knew this man by name and it wasn't the name Legion. It was his true name. Father, thank you that in the darkest places and in the darkest nights of the soul, that the light of Jesus is more powerful. Father, thank you that no legion of demons could outnumber the Savior. And so, Lord, will you give us hope tonight in the dark nights and in the challenges and in the places where we need your light to shine through. Father, would you help us to be at your feet? Would you help us to respond in faith? And for where you lead, Lord, would you help us to obey? We thank you and praise you, give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.